Hey guys, Sam Mellinger here, sports columnist with the Kansas City Star, and this is Mellinger Minutes for your ears. A huge thanks for giving us your time. I hope we're worth it. Uh, I wanna talk about sports owners here, not just baseball owners, though I suppose that's where most of this is coming from. You probably heard Cardinals owner Bill DeWitt and Diamondbacks owner Ken Kendrick stop basically one step short of claiming poor, saying that owning baseball teams is not very profitable. Yeah. Now look, like we would probably all have friends, right, who do quite well for themselves while owning small businesses that come tax time, voila, are not very profitable. Uh, I know I have friends like this, you know, they're tax forms and, you know, therefore what they could technically and truthfully claim, say that they're not very profitable. But are you really not very profitable if you have 5,000 square feet in a house, in a boat, in a timeshare? You know, Scott Boris has hit on something here, you know, pointing out that it's not that owning the baseball team isn't profitable, but it's how these guys have spent their money outside of the team. It's in land development. It's in building up profit centers outside of ballparks. You know, some of it too comes in the very real investment required in sort of, you know, baseball operations infrastructure. I'm talking not just about signing bonuses for amateur players, but facility upkeep, new technology, coaching, travel, all that stuff. You know, but look, like regardless of what DeWitt and his peers can claim on paper, they have to realize how silly they sound when the 28 owners who've had their teams for more than two years have already had their franchises increase at least $750 million in value. In some cases, it's over $2 billion. You don't get to claim poor in those situations from losing half a season. Or, you know, at least you should... He should be ashamed to claim poor, right? Like your awful handling of money exposed for the world to see. But let's try to be productive with this for a second. My hope, and maybe this is naive, is that if a half a season gone means owners are freaking out over the value of their portfolio, my sincere hope is that when the games return, and especially when fans return, that those owners do a better job of listing and valuing their fans. I'm not actually talking about the Royals here, you know, at least in the last decade or so, I've always thought the Royals do right by their fans, even in the bad years. You know, they, they have ticket packages affordable to middle or working class families. They run specials on concessions. They let fans bring in water, things like that. They do a great job with the in-stadium experience, with how the ushers and other stadium employees treat fans. They're aces on that stuff. You know, I've felt it firsthand when we've taken the family, and I know others have had similar experiences. But I, I do think in broad terms, lots of professional sports teams are sort of losing the plot. You know, they're chasing dollars and not building connections. They're thinking of fans as consumers, as these profit centers, in terms of what they can get right now instead of what they can create right now to make this person a lifelong fan, to build that loyalty. I'm talking about cost for sure, but also fan experience, feeling like you have a voice, that you're valued, that you can see and interact with the athletes you root for. One of my biggest pet peeves is when owners or club execs talk about their team's brand, about what their brand means, about keeping their brand strong. That's corporate jargon that cheapens the fans who make it all go. It needs to stop. You're not a brand. You're a team. You're entertainment. You're an entity that should be focused on making fans feel like they're more than a revenue source. Nobody roots for a brand. They root for a team. Anyway, it's like if the coronavirus pandemic is putting a bit of a scare into the owners, I say good. Uh, they need one. They've long been in line for a humbling. I just hope that like on the other side of this, that they spend more time building those connections and less on going like, you know, sort of pedal to the metal on regaining lost revenue. So I know, like after I say that out loud, uh, probably sounds naive, but let me be naive, damn it. 
Um, okay, here's the weekly reminder. If you'd like to participate in the show, please call 816-234-4365. 816-234-4365. Leave your first name, where you're calling from, almost literally any question. Again, 816-234-4365. Last time, 816-234-4365. Okay, cool. Um, quick break, and we will come back with your questions. Good morning, Sam. This is Tim Barry. I live in South Kansas City. I love your columns. You're the, you're the best columnist, best articles in the uh, sports section, Kansas City Star sports section. About Mahomes being a $200 million player. Yes, he deserves it. Yes. Fantastic. But do I want him to see that, get that contract? No. No, I'm not, not being rude or anything, but the reason Brady was so good, one of the reasons Brady was so good is he took a lower salary, um, so that he could be surrounded by phenomenal players, I mean, excellent players and everything. Because it's, it's a team sport. You know, you have to have, it's like Aaron Rodgers feeling that pinch now. He's got a huge contract, Aaron does, but he doesn't have the supporting, you know, players. You've got to have, or as good as they were, as good as they were, you know, when he went to the Super Bowl. Yes, you got to have team sport, you got to have great defense, you got, and what makes Mahomes good, he's got, you know, Kelsey, incredible, receiving cores and a fantastic offensive line, you know, to uh, give him protection. If he doesn't, if he doesn't have that protection, you know, no one, you know, can, can, um, gotta have time for the, to, to find the receivers and protection. And of course you need Sherman out there, you know, doing it, doing his stuff. You take care, keep up the fantastic work and, uh, take care. Bye. Look, I hear you. It's a logical case you make. And Mahomes taking, you know, what, 60 or 70% of his worth in exchange for the front office having more money to fill out the roster might be the one thing that he could do, right? Other than like open a ribs joint to make Chiefs fans love him even more. But, you know, you could even take this one step further, right? Like, and I know some have, some have already made this point, you know, the idea that every dollar he leaves on the table will come back to him in some form, maybe not one for one, but it'll come back to him in some form if it does translate to, you know, continued Super Bowls through bigger endorsements. Um, it's not an illogical case to make. It happens to be one that I disagree with strongly, and I'll tell you why. You know, first, and, you know, this is no disrespect to Brett Veach uh, or anyone else in the front office, but there's no guarantee that that extra money will be spent productively. You know, I mean, hell, the, the Super Bowl champions carried $14 million in dead cap money for Justin Houston and Eric Berry. Um, you know, more to the point, though, it's not Mahomes' job to worry about the salary cap. The same way that Veach can't tell Mahomes to feed Sammy Watkins to make that contract look better, you know, Mahomes can't tell Veach how and where to spend money. Uh, you wouldn't want that. And what if he takes less and then the Chiefs end up $10 million under the cap or something? You know, like Clark Hunt just gets to keep that money? Is that fair? Uh, is that what Mahomes should do? You know, I, I know like at some point <laughs> when we're talking about money, uh, especially in the NFL, it's like we're just talking about monopoly money, right? Like it's not real. You know, Mahomes' great, great, great grandchildren will not have to worry about their next meal. But, you know, by the rules set up, he has earned every dollar he has coming his way and, and probably more, you know, he's already probably going to take less than his true value. When you think of the extra tickets, the jerseys, the beers, the parking spots, the T-shirts, like everything that will be sold because of him. You know, we can talk about quarterbacks being protected. 
But this is still a very violent game. And, you know, like that Alex Smith injury, you know, that, that could happen to anybody. So, you know, I've never turned down millions of dollars and I don't expect an athlete who's done everything right so far to do it either. You know, one more thing, you know, and this isn't talked about openly as much, but Mahomes is carrying more than just his own family on this. Like, you know, that contract will be the new standard for other players around the league. And it will have a sort of, you know, trickle down across the league. So, you know, if he gets a full guarantee or percentage of the cap or, you know, whatever his record salary ends up being, like any mile marker like that, it's going to benefit the next guy on his deal, the guy after that and so on. So, you know, if if he pushes that value as high as he can, he's always he's also pushing the value for others. And, you know, what's also true is the other side of that. Like if he takes less, it means other will be taking less because, well, Mahomes didn't get that. So you think you're better than Mahomes? You know, players across the league will be making less, which means the owners will be keeping more. So look, again, I I get where you're coming from and he'd be a hero to many Chiefs fans if he took less, but he'd also be doing a disservice to himself without any guarantee of benefit. And he'd be making it harder for other players across the league to get paid in a brutal sport with short careers. Um, Okay, we got a baseball question too here. Hey, Sammy, it's Trent Peculiar. Got a question in regards to uh, minor league baseball players and the way that uh, teams are looking to not pay them. Basically, they're saying, hey, you're still our employee, but we're not going to pay you. Um, hypothetically, if all those minor leaguers were able to become free agents after this year because of this, do you think that would help or hurt the Royals, or do you think it would be neutral? You know, would they be able to go out and sign a bunch of, you know, high power prospects, or would they think they try to keep the same guys? Uh, just so uh, Trent called in with this before the draft and minor leaguers under contract are not going to become free agents. So I'm going to answer a slightly different question to make what could be an important point. Um, the Royals did more than just do good by their minor leaguers and the broader cause of baseball when they decided to, you know, not just pay minor leaguers fully, but to not release any of them like a lot of other clubs are doing. Uh, The Royals also created a competitive advantage for themselves with that. I wrote about this last week after a call from Scott Boris, and I've heard similar sentiments from from other agents since. You know, Asa Lacey, thought by many to be the best player in the draft, said the Royals were where he wanted to go. Nick Lofton, the Royals' uh, selection at 32 overall, expressed similar sentiments. There are other high-ceiling talents who felt the same. So... You know, the first place that that's an advantage is in getting the best from players, right? Like morale matters, buy-in matters. If a prospect believes he's in the best place for himself, he's going to work in a slightly different way. He's going to be motivated in a slightly different way. Uh, Baseball games and baseball seasons are won in the margins, and every little edge matters. You know, this one is significant for a franchise that has to win based largely on player development. You know, this is this is the Royals key um, all right here. But, the, you know, the other place that it matters is sort of what Trent is talking about in the question. You know, minor leaguers are treated fairly poorly by rule. I think we all know that the pay is crap. The facilities, even at the high end of the minor leagues, don't match the top 25 or so college programs. Like, you know, these guys, they don't have a lot of power once they sign, but they do have power before that. And. You know, the, the point is that baseball is not set up like the NFL or the NBA where you either sign with the team that drafts you or you find another line of work, basically. You know, international prospects have the most power in choosing a destination, but even domestic talent can have some influence. Like, say you're a high school senior, a high school prospect. Like, you, you have a scholarship to USC or Arizona State or Vanderbilt or Texas or wherever. You know, those are great programs. You know, big league clubs vary in how well they support 
they're minor leaguers. If the wrong one drafts you, you can play in college for three years. You know, more to the point before the draft, you can tell the wrong teams to stay away and the right teams that you'll sign. You can have some influence. The same is true for JUCO kids uh, who don't have to wait the three years. College juniors have some say, though it does diminish a bit with time, you know, particularly with, you know, once you become a four-year college guy. But again, this can translate to better talent coming in. And I expect that once the teams begin to sign those non-drafted guys this summer after the draft. Like, you know, don't misunderstand. I don't think this is a tidal wave coming where, you know, the best prospects are all going to be fighting each other to play in Idaho Falls or whatever. But, you know, again, these things are won and lost on the margins. And the Royals are just so well positioned to win on this margin. Okay, uh, we're going to take one more quick break and then be back with a Kansas City native who quite literally changed the NFL in the last week. Okay, I caught up with uh, Brendan Minter, uh, Kansas City native, Blue Valley Northwest grad, Mizzou grad, and part of the NFL social media division. Uh, he was the one that, that reached out to Saint star Michael Thomas and, and got this video going. And I just, I thought it was interesting, not just because he's from here, uh, but just his part of this. And especially, he says it a few different times over and over again, and I'm glad he did, that this wasn't about him. He was the vehicle, but you know, this was, this wouldn't have happened without obviously Mike Thomas and the players being into it, but also a, a lot of voices within the office, uh, specifically from, from black employees in the NFL to kind of lay the groundwork to get this all going. So anyway, uh, here's part of the conversation. It's being clipped, you know, just for clarity and brevity. Okay. Thanks. First man, it's, it's a hell of a thing you did. Um, uh, and you know, you've told the story obviously, but, um, uh, you know, for anyone who hasn't heard you're a Blue Valley Northwest grad, is that right? I am. Yep. Yeah, and and Mizzou, and you're working with NFL. Yeah, working with the NFL social media division. You and you basically the you became frustrated with how the league was reacting or or not reacting to protests around the country. So um, you reach out to Michael Thomas about creating a video, and things kind of went from there. You know, the way I understand it, he, he was in charge of getting all the players right, and then uh, you and your partner were in charge of the mechanics. You know, getting the video together. Yeah. Um, it was just like one of the things about how you told the story just that sticks out is just how damn quickly this thing came together. I mean, what, what was that day like for you? Um, yes. I mean, there, there were hardly any breaks whatsoever. <laughs> the one time that I ate, uh, on Thursday, which was at Chick-fil-A, uh, and that was actually the, the moment where, uh, I talked to, to Pat's marketing slash, uh, advertising director, Jacqueline. And uh, mm-hmm. it just clarified, um, you know, the, the tone of the video and, and what uh, we were trying to do, excuse me, at about 10.15 uh, um, Pacific time. And, yeah, I mean, uh, as far as uh, compared to any other creative project I've done, um, this is absolutely the most wild, um, such an aggressive timeline. Uh, it, it took full effort from everyone and like I really applaud uh, Mike for for being able to orchestrate everything so well with with all these players uh, not only did he recruit everyone and, and get buy-in but uh, he, he was sending the videos to me Mike simultaneously dealing with the breeze situation uh, while also having recruited the players um, in, a, in a fluid situation throughout the day more and more people uh, wanted to join in Saquon, uh, Odell, et cetera. Um, 
later in the day. Uh, Sterling Shepard actually sent his videos in uh, probably 30 to 45 minutes before it was it, it ended up getting posted. Um, so super fluid situation, um, a wild effort on Mike's part to be able to, to recruit and send all of those videos one by one, uh, line by line to me, um, and, and make this work. So uh, yeah. really just an unbelievable effort um, and a truly remarkable uh, creative project to, to have, have turned that around in less than 24 hours. Yeah, and, and obviously there was some urgency to get the thing out as soon sure, as it could. Sure. But like in, in, if this was a normal video with the same level of editing, like how much time would you ideally have to put something like that together? So that would probably be two weeks, honestly, <laughs> uh, in, a, in a normal workflow. Um, in a corporate workflow like that where we're reaching out to the proper channels uh, and going through every single person that needs to know this in order to contact the player and in order to get buy-in from the player. It's going to be probably a two-week timeline on that. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, that you mentioned Mahomes, and the video was just chock full of stars, but how important was it getting that guy? Like, you know, and, and when you had the video, were you sort of conscious on, on where to put him? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I so I mean from the start of it, um, like Mike and I wanted to get Patrick in there uh, as long as he was willing to and and uh, ready to speak out. So Mike and I knew from the start like we, we wanted Patrick to be in this. We we knew how powerful his voice was um, as the the face of the league right now, the Super Bowl MVP, um, arguably the most marketable player. Uh, in the league, potentially in sports, right? Sure. Definitely, yeah. definitely in the city, in in Kansas City. So, um, to to get a voice like that amongst others, amongst an already Pro Bowl roster, uh, Deshaun Watson, Saquon Barkley, Odell, um, like it, it was unbelievable collectively. But again, to to get specifically Patrick to, to be able to do that and to to have him say to to bring home uh, the message fully that you know we the National Football League believe that Black Lives Matter coming from Patrick was so powerful. Yeah, yeah, and I I wonder you know I mean he re, he put a statement out on social media um, you know a week or two before, and, um, but he's not like a really at least until now, he hasn't been a real, like, socially active guy. He's a 24-year-old, you know, quarterback, all those things. But, you know, before you talked to Jacqueline, uh, before you had that conversation, did you did you have a feeling? I mean, were, were you optimistic? Did you think he would do it? Um, I, I felt like because the other collective players were already in on this, and it was so apparent that this was, A, urgent, and B, a, a passion project, directly from Mike Thomas um, when when Mike reached out to, to Patrick. Like, I, I felt that was definitely um, that, that was definitely uh, potential. So b- before I talked to her, um, I felt optimism. Uh, I felt like there was so, mo- so much momentum uh, on this project and, and so much passion behind the players that have already sent in videos uh, and Mike trying to recruit that uh, it 
just it felt right. Um, it, yeah. it felt like it was going to happen. And uh, after hearing from from Patrick's team that they, you know, it, it really did seem like they were all in here. Um, also, no hesitation uh, to, for someone like Patrick's team. Such a, a pivotal offseason is, is just unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. What um, you know, sometimes it's easy for and I do it sometimes just to kind of dismiss social media, right? Like especially Twitter um, is just kind of silliness. But there, I mean, there are things that hit with people, um, and this is obviously one of them. I'm just curious, like, what has this been like for you know the last few days of watching the reaction, see how many times it's viewed, see how people react to it? Um. I mean, it's it's been it's definitely been great to see that the content like this has has resonated so well. Um, I think that you know I I am not surprised uh, that it did um, in in two ways because I, I think that a uh, because this message was inspired and informed by players and 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 colleagues, black colleagues that. Uh, have been trying to raise their voice like you know over and over again we we hear that same sentiment and um that message holds true uh so the fact that the message itself resonated with people was was not surprising to me it was simply informed because we we've just we've been listening right um and and restating the ideas and and uh beliefs that people have have said time and time again um, the other thing is that I think just from a social standpoint, um, the way it was put together, the way that the script was written, um, it was short, it was, it was simple, but it was still powerful. Um, and to, you know, it, it's, it's social strategy, nitty gritty, but, but some of the, the things, uh, and, and techniques on how it was edited uh, just make me again not surprised that it, it performed well. So yeah. I think that I think that you know I am a very small part in this, and I think that the video catal- the, the video was was the catalyst of this whole uh, effort and, and timeline that took years in the making. But I do think that just with my experience as a social producer. And, and just knowing how videos uh, can be cut to work well uh, in the space was was definitely a, a helpful thing. Yeah, for sure. Um, how much of the other side have you heard? You know, have you heard any, you know, sort of stick to sports or, you know, have you heard any, the other side of it? Honestly, I am so surprised that I have barely gotten any pushback. I thought that with my name uh, kind of – getting out there at this point, like I would have a ton of at least Facebook messages uh, <laughs> from, from people expressing that I might have, uh, I might have two message requests, like mm-hmm. some random, some random person in Utah <laughs> <laughs> expressing that. But like, other than that, it is complete support from strangers, from colleagues, uh, from people that I, I, work with and know from people that I work with and have never met uh, yeah. is a ton of, of support. Yeah, that's wild. You can't get complete support for anything. Yeah. <laughs> you know it, I mean? it sure seems like it. it's, it's yeah. 98%. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, look, like the uh, 
the, the place you work is not exactly known for, you know, embracing people going rogue, right? Sure. I think we would agree on that. Like, um, I know you said that you were prepared to lose your job, but um, when you reached out to your boss and said, like, look, this is what's happening, um, did you have an expectation of how that conversation would go? Did you, I mean, you said you were prepared to lose your job. Do you think you would lose your job? I I did. I, I did think I was going to lose my job. I didn't think that it was going to come from my direct supervisor because, uh, you know, out, out of anyone in the league that I work with, I, I trust him the most. We uh, have done many, many large uh, large-scale projects together, uh, and, like, I, I trust his creative direction and, and vision and support, and I knew where he stood on this matter, and, uh, you know, I, I knew that he also believed in that message. Um, the thing that worried me is that, you know, while while we both believe in the message, like, we have understood uh, that past week, like, you know, this is a incredibly complex situation, and after time and time again of our team expressing, hey, we don't want to post anything until the lead comes out and says these important words, um, and and hey, like why can't we just why can't we as a league do that? It's simple. Just say we can condemn racism, and you know we believe Black Lives Matter. That's unbelievable if we can't as a company say that. Um, yeah. So again, we, we knew it was a complex situation. Uh, when I told him initially, um, like I said, it, it was, it was backed by support. Um, he immediately said, Hey, we need to escalate this. Uh, and it was a, a feeling of like, what the hell are you putting me through, Brendan? Like, <laughs> what is about to happen? <laughs> this is unbelievable. Yeah. And, and the, you know, the Roger Goodell video was something too. I mean, um, you know, to have him basically read the script that you wrote that you guys put together. Yeah. Um, did you have a heads up that that was coming that he, that he decided to do that or what, what was your reaction to that? And what's been the reaction around the league? Yeah, we, we did have a little bit of a heads up, uh, that that was coming. Um, the, the morning, the morning on Friday, um, I, I had several calls with um, NFL execs, and, and they had expressed that, hey, this uh, this video is being made um, by Roger. Uh, he's pretty much, you know, he's acknowledging verbatim uh, everything that the players said uh, and responding directly to them. So that that was really cool to see, and I respect that move. Do you have a sense that there's real – how do you say it? like that this isn't just a moment, you know, that this isn't just a week where we do something, you know, we talk about this, but things will be yeah. different in the fall. Yeah. hundred yeah, percent. Um, definitely feel like this is different. Right. I, I think that, um, excuse me. I, I think that words are, words can be cheap, but these, Specific phrases were incredibly powerful and a uh-huh. really great starting point uh, for where the league trajectory is headed for the new century of football. Right, it's the hundred first season. Um, it, it feels different right now. It really does. Um, and with that being said, uh, you know Roger and 
other executives right now are not doing interviews, right? They, mm-hmm. they don't want to talk right now. They are, are completely aligned in, in the sentiment that there's work to be done right now. There's no time to, to be talking. Um, so I, I respect the hell out of that and I appreciate that sentiment. Um, and things to immediately address, uh, you know, Roger reached out to, to me, um, and expressed that he wanted me to, to help them, uh, further create content similar to the video, um, for the league's social justice initiatives. And I said, uh, you know, I'm, I'm honored, uh, of course that, that you would think of me to do that. Like I definitely want to, to help out in this effort, but I want to make sure that we, are giving the right voices uh, that platform, right? We are having the message of these videos be informed by the right voices. I'm a white dude from Kansas City. Uh, my voice doesn't matter here. I'm, I'm happy to be the tool to execute the video, but I want the right voices to inform this. I want the proper perspectives to have a seat at the table here. And then we're going to get a better product and a, a more powerful message that resonates with more people. Yeah. Um, I mean, look, like the, the video is obviously, uh, you know, something of a turning point, but it wouldn't have been a turning point if there wasn't a different, you know, sort of feeling, I guess, sure. for lack of a better way to say it. I guess. Are, do you have a theory of why? the league's reaction is so much different now than it was four years ago, you know, when, when Kaepernick started kneeling. Do, do you have a theory mm-hmm. on that? Um, yeah, yeah, I do. Um, I think that the, the league's, the league's stance right now, uh, compared to years ago is a direct result of the years of work from my black colleagues, uh, the social justice groups within the NFL, the black engagement network within the NFL. Um, this, this timeline is years in the making. And to, to say that, you know, the league changed within 48 hours, uh, looking at these two videos, I think is a, a disservice to the powerful voices, uh, internally that that laid down that foundational work in order for this to happen right i don't want those people those voices uh and that amount of work to go unnoticed and uncelebrated because we are in this moment right now heading into the new century of football solely because of those efforts before me mm-hmm. yeah D- do you um Look like to get that many players that quickly. There's there's a lot of factors and motivations involved, but you know the NFL players. I think traditionally the feeling has been, um, you know, not as what's the right word like empowered to speak out sure. um, as you know the NBA for instance. But did you did you have a sense when you're dealing with with um, with Mike Thomas and anybody else? Did you have a sense of was their motivation coming from, you know, just how fed up they are with everything? Or was there an element of, you know, do players feel more more free to speak now than they did four or five years ago? Or, you know, some combination or maybe some other factors I'm not thinking of. Uh, you know, that's, that's an interesting question. I think that 
there are many factors that are enabling players to, to feel more comfortable to, to share their voice. I think that especially in the last couple years, um, players have, have started to realize, and, and really this is a mantra of NFL social, that um, the players are influencers themselves, mm-hmm. right? Uh, for instance, Patrick has more than 3 million followers comparatively to the, the Chiefs on Instagram that have about a million, um, yeah. over, over a million, I think. And, you know, fans, uh, fans pay attention to what the players are doing, what the players are saying. Um, and fans want to know the players' personalities. Um, and, and that's where the loyal, <laughs> excuse me, that's where the loyalty lies. Um, I think that players are day after day realizing that that is the case and, and realizing more and more that their voices are way more powerful than, than they may think. Uh, and, and when those voices are collectively expressing the same sentiment, like that is unignorable. And, and that's what happened here. Okay, guys, uh, thank you very much uh, for spending some of your time with us. Uh, big thanks to uh, Brendan Minter uh, for taking the time to talk and, uh, and to Randy Mason. Savannah was out this week, so uh, big thanks to Randy Mason for putting all this all together and uh, making it sound at least passable. Thanks, guys. Talk to you next week. <laughs>